it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of All Crime, No Cattle, a Texas true crime podcast. We are back in the closet. <laughs> we I don't know when we're going to get out of the closet, but we are here in the closet. It you, is. You said you loved the sound it, of it, the closet, so yeah. you might stay here. Yeah, it works really well. I can see why voice actors and professionals record in the closet now. But your toe's broken, we think. Maybe, probably, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Do you want to expound on that? You you kicked no, a trash can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what happened. I kicked a trash can coming around a corner to do nothing. I was going too fast to do nothing. Yeah, it's very bruised. Yeah, it hurts. Painful. But hey, I'm here dedicated to my craft. Yes. I'm ready to record. And it is part two of a two-parter. So we are we are at the the climax. We have all this this interesting info we have to dig into. So Keep that in mind. If you haven't listened to part one of this series, go back, listen to that first. Don't start here. <laughs> you'll be you'll be very confused. Uh, but yeah, let's do you have like a quick synopsis that we can go through real quickly on what happened in part one? Absolutely. Great idea, because a lot happened in episode one. Boy, did it. <laughs> so some of the important details we learned last time. In 1963, Madeleine Murray O'Hare founded the organization American Atheists, a group that advocates for the rights of atheists as well as for the separation of church and state. She, her youngest son John Garth, and her granddaughter Robin controlled and ran the group as well as several other similar organizations. In late 1994, the family left for a trip and returned to find that David Waters, the office manager at the American Atheist headquarters, had laid off their employees, and had stolen $55,000 from the organization. Waters eventually pled guilty and was given deferred adjudication and ordered to pay back fifteen grand as restitution. Madeline was angry about her treatment by the APD and the DA's office, as well as Waters' lax punishment, so she wrote an article in her magazine detailing the theft 
as well as Waters' previous crimes. And obviously, this was not a simple retelling of the facts. It was written in Madeline's trademark style, so it was very stylized and I'm sure contained a lot of general name-calling and insults, of course. (laughs) Okay. Well, just three months after the article was published, Madeline, 76 years old and in failing health, John Garth, who was 40, and Robin, 30, disappeared. On August 28, 1995, American Atheist staff members showed up to the group's headquarters in Austin to find a note signed by John Garth telling them that the, f- telling them that the family had been called away on an emergency and that all employees were temporarily laid off until their expected return. Throughout the month of September, the family had kept contact with their staff on John Garth's cell phone. The only clue as to where the family was located during this time was when John Garth gave them an address for a P.O. box in San Antonio. The final communication between the family and staff members came on September 29th, after which the Murray O'Hares were never seen or heard from again. Now, there were many theories about the family's disappearance, but the most common conclusion people came to was that the family had disappeared on their own accord, stealing money from their organizations and fleeing to New Zealand to escape their legal battles. However, American Atheist spokespeople claimed there was no money missing and that even they didn't know where the family was. Even still, no one reported the Murray O'Hares as missing, and no one investigated their mysterious disappearance. I know we talked about this last episode, but it is so wild to me that nobody contacted the authorities about them being missing for this amount of time. It's just crazy. Yeah, it is. And as far as the American atheists go, I do believe that they thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were kind of following Madeline's orders. And then when they never heard from Madeline again, it was kind of shrugging their shoulders and kind of going, well, we're just going to we're going to continue on without her and hope that she's okay." Yeah. Keep the ship afloat. You know, the whole organization has to move forward as much as it could. Yeah. So nothing happens with this story until the summer of 1996, when an editor at the San Antonio Express News suggested to reporter John McCormick that he cover a story about the missing family. By this time, John McCormick was already a respected reporter with an established career of over two decades. Having written hundreds, if not thousands, of articles covering stories all over Texas. He actually wasn't a native Texan, though. He was born in New Jersey and grew up in upstate New York, lifetime Red Sox fan. He became a reporter and moved around the country before coming to Texas in 1985 to work for the Dallas Times-Herald. After that newspaper shuttered its doors in late 1991, he began working for the San Antonio Express News the following year. So this was a man with a very solid career in reporting, and he's later said that he wasn't thrilled right away with the suggestion of covering this story. He hadn't even heard that the family was missing, which was in part due to how quiet the American atheists were being about it. But he shrugged off his initial hesitation and decided to check it out. He was like, what the hell? At the very least, I can write an article about it all, right? Yeah. So he headed out to Austin, dug around, talked to lots of people within the American Atheist Organization, including Spike Tyson and Ellen Johnson, amongst others. And around the one-year mark of the family's disappearance, John McCormick published his first article on the story. Now, even though a whole year had passed since the family first left Austin, 
No one knew anything yet. So So this first article was just a synopsis of the story. Hey, there's this prominent atheist family that seems to be missing. For a year. And for a year. And here are some theories about what might have happened to them. But this was the first time an article addressing the family's disappearance and any real depth had come out. And it sharpened public interest in the case. People actually started paying attention. Yeah, I I would imagine it's a very attractive story. There's a whole family who's been missing for a year. Nobody knows where they are. Yeah, that's right. And even more importantly, as a result of this article and the public pressure it invoked, it finally prompted William to change his mind and make an official missing persons report with the Austin Police Department in September of 1996. Okay, so now we're on the books. We've got a missing persons report. Jesus. Okay. They're finally compelled to investigate, right? (laughs) Thank goodness. After a year. Yes. Well, one of the first things the APD did was try to locate Robin and John Garth's vehicles. Remember, Spike Tyson had noticed that they were missing from the house. And with this, they had some luck. They found Robin's Porsche sitting in long-term parking at the Robert Mueller Municipal Airport in, in Austin. San... Oh, okay. I was thinking it was San Antonio, but all right, Austin. That's yes, interesting. In Austin. So what does that tell you? Missing family, car left behind at the airport. It seems like they traveled somewhere. Yes. And this new discovery just happened to nicely fit into that preconceived notion that yeah. the family had willingly left their house. Yeah. So people are thinking like New Zealand, going abroad. Of course. Yeah. And so right from the start, the APD wash their hands of the entire matter. Wow. Locating Robin's vehicle was the first and last time the APD would lift a finger in the case of the three missing people. Why? I mean, that's it? Oh, we're going to continue. The, st- the story will go on. Sure. But, like, it's really weird that the an entire police force <laughs> yeah. and investigators would just be like, well, we wash our hands of this at yeah. this moment. 100. The- but that's wow. exactly what happened. It is shocking the bungling of this case by the Austin Police Department. I will just come out and say it. And to be clear, this is not me having this negative opinion. This is everyone who has ever commented on this case. We'll say that from the bottom to the top, this case was absolutely botched by the Austin Police Department. It seems flagrant, like very purposeful. Uh, Honestly. We don't care. We're not going to... We're at the beginning. We're at the start of it. So just hold on to your butts. (laughs) Okay, all right. Thankfully, though, John McCormick decided to continue his own investigation. Now, there was a central issue to this story, and it was whether or not there was evidence of the family stealing money from their organization. If they had, then it might suggest that the rumors were true and that the family was alive and in hiding. That makes sense. Well, someone, and this was either a colleague or some sort of anonymous American atheist staffer or someone else, it's not quite clear, But this person suggested to McCormick that he look through tax records of Madeline's various organizations to see if there were any discrepancies reported. Oh, that's a good good idea. Yeah. And of course, because they were all nonprofits, their tax records are available to the public. Yeah. Okay. McCormick discovered that in tax filings from the year 1995, one of their organizations called the United Secularists of America had reported a total amount of about $625,000 as missing. And today that's about over a million dollars. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. In the document, the organization stated that the money was, quote, believed to be in possession of John Murray, former secretary. The whereabouts of John Murray and these assets 
has not been known since September 1995 and is not known to the organization at this time. So this was very shocking, especially when American atheists officials had been so adamant that there was no money missing from any of the accounts the family had access to. Now McCormick had clear evidence proving that not only was there indeed money missing, but that the organization seemed to believe John Garth had stolen it, although obviously they didn't use that strong of language. Now, of course, McCormick tried to go back to those American atheist staffers, Spike Tyson and Ellen Johnson, and get an update. And coincidentally, they basically shut down and stopped talking to reporters from here on out. Now, well, is it because they're trying to protect the organization at this point? They, They go on the defense, I imagine. Yeah, I think you could kind of say that. And and to be clear, I'm not ragging on the American Atheist Organization or Spike Tyson or Ellen Johnson at all. I think that at first they were trying to do what they thought Madeline wanted to, them to do. Sure. And when perhaps they found that the money was missing or somewhere along the lines, they realized maybe Madeline had done something wrong or there was something else at foot. Especially with this new report. Away. With this missing money coming yeah. out. Oh, my gosh. I mean, yeah, it's kind of embarrassing, I'm sure. And they didn't yeah. know what to do about it. So they just stopped talking Turtle. to the media. Lock it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in December of 1996, McCormick published his second article on the story, this time detailing the information about this missing money, $625,000. Now, to some, of course, this fit the narrative as before, proof that the family had misappropriated money from an organization right before they disappeared. With McCormick's articles getting the story traction, more and more reporters began to join the hunt to find the Murray O'Hares. Evan Moore of the Houston Chronicle was able to track down John Garth's missing vehicle, his Mercedes-Benz. Okay. He discovered that the vehicle had been sold in the middle of September 1995. A man in San Antonio had seen the Mercedes advertised for sale in the San Antonio Express News for $15,000 in cash. And apparently this was a very good deal as the blue book value of the car was about 21,000. Okay, so fast money, mm-hmm. like I'm mov- yeah. moving the car yes. quickly. Okay. Yes, absolutely. The buyer said that he met with a seller who identified himself as John Garth Murray. Hmm. But when the reporter showed the man a picture of John Garth, he said that the man he dealt with didn't look anything like him. Okay, so this seems like somebody else is involved selling the car. That's right. And John Garth was a very memorable guy. He stood at about six foot four. He weighed about 300 pounds at the time of the disappearance. He had a big crop of very dark hair, a big dark mustache, and he spoke with a pronounced lisp. You can't miss him. Exactly. He, he sounds very, he would stick out in a crowd. Exactly. The buyer said the man he purchased the Mercedes from was much shorter, not even six foot tall, and he had light colored hair, no mustache, no lisp. Hmm. This sounds like whoever has the family. It sounds like a kidnapping situation and they are selling off assets. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good take on the situation. It seems really strange. I mean, if the family was missing voluntarily, why would he be selling his Mercedes, his prized possession? Why was he selling it for so much less than what it was worth? Why would he have someone impersonate him to sell it? And who was this person? Who was this imposter? So for perhaps the first time yet, here was pretty strong evidence that something else was going on. Yeah, it's starting to seem fishy. Yeah. 
But still, the APD continued to shrug their shoulders. The department, of course they did. Yeah. The department released a press release basically saying that it wasn't against the law to be voluntarily missing, noting, quote, we've already given this more attention than a case of its type because of her notoriety. So they, they went ahead and did a press release. I'm, I'm sure for the family and everybody who cares about them, this is infuriating because you took the time to make a press release and write it up you're not seriously going to investigate? You're not going to do your due diligence? Well, I mean, there's a lot more, man, because get this. Then the lead detective assigned to the case went off. He was Detective Stephen Baker of the APD's Missing Person Unit. And in an interview with Robert Bryce of the Austin Chronicle, he suggested that the Murray O'Hares had gone to San Antonio to purchase themselves new identities, and then they had left the country. Quote, That's why I'm of the opinion that they are not dead and that there was no foul play involved. I still have that feeling. If somebody wants to show me a body or a crime scene, I'll be glad to have my opinion changed. Hmm. Is is there any truth to any of that? Well, let's think about it. Why would the family need to get fake identities for any reason, even to leave the country? They were not wanted for anything. They had no charges against them. They were free and easy to leave the country. Anytime they pleased, why would they have needed to do that? And you know what they would have needed to leave the country? Their passports. That would have been an easy thing, but they left that behind Mm -hmm. at the house. So his explanations don't make sense to people who actually know what's going on in the case. Yeah, why would you leave your passports at home only to go to San Antonio to get fake ones made so that you can leave the country? That makes no sense. Yeah. So what's William doing at this point? He he kind of seemed apathetic to the whole thing. He put in the missing persons report, but then you, we know he's estranged from the family and distant, but also concerned. So what's going on with William? Well, by this point, he was actually very vocal about his frustration with the APD and the fact that he was now sure that they had been kidnapped and were dead. So he really? by, by this time in the media, he that's what he was saying. He also seemed resigned to the fact that he might never know what happened to his family, saying, quote, I don't have any more resources and I don't think the police have any genuine interest. We're at a dead end unless the press finds them. So he's frustrated with the the lack of investigation from Austin PD at this point. And also we know he, him and his, his family have been at odds completely. So that's that's a big statement from him. Yeah, agreed. So even though he was, like you said, apathetic at the beginning, he did really kind of change that around and was, I think, genuinely concerned and frustrated with everything that was going on. Yeah. But there was one agency willing to investigate, but for an entirely different reason. The IRS still wanted their money. Curious. Okay. Uh Yeah. I was wondering Uh if it was going to be the FBI and the IRS. Okay. (laughs) All right. That makes sense. If we remember from last time, the family and the IRS had been battling for years before their disappearance, with the agency ultimately accusing Robin and John Garth of owing them $1.5 million combined, and they were threatening Madeline herself that she could owe them even more. Yeah. Yet just before they disappeared, the IRS had settled with the family for first $75,000 and then further decreased it to $35,000. A nice deal, right? 
but did they ever like make those payments for no, the $35,000? No, they did not, because as okay. we know, yeah. the family went missing. vanished. Yeah, they never paid up. And then a year or so later, you have lots of people, including the lead detective on the case, talking about how the family had voluntarily fled the country and perhaps it was to avoid paying them, the IRS, but the measly $35,000. So quite frankly, Shay, the IRS <laughs> started to feel a little taken advantage of. <laughs> well, I don't blame them. <laughs> they, were, they were sold a false bill of promises of they were going to get this money. It's been reduced several times. Yeah. Uh, but also, it, it seems like an opportunity where the IRS uh, might be able to break open the case and figure out Ooh. where they went. And- Dang. You're good. You should become an investigator. <laughs> well, you know, you're talking <laughs> you to are Detective, Detective Shea Butter. <laughs> That's right. I almost forgot. Well, so, of course, the IRS relaunched their investigation into the family, ultimately claiming that they were owed $260,000 in back taxes. How they came up with this figure, to, to be honest, I don't know. But okay. $260,000 is now what it is. Then, in February of 1997, the IRS showed up to the family's home in Austin and seized everything. Now, a part of the team was IRS Special Agent Ed Martin, who began investigating as he would any normal run-of-the-mill tax evasion or money laundering case. So as the IRS is starting to get involved, let's go back to John McCormick, because shortly after he wrote his second article, he was contacted by a private investigator named Tim Young, who was offering his services. Young had experience tracking people down when they didn't want to be found. And in fact, he'd worked as a private investigator locating people who had defaulted on payments on high-end purchases like luxury cars. He's like a dog the bounty hunter kind of guy. (laughs) I guess so. Yeah, I I think that is kind of a... Or maybe he's not dog himself, but he's dog's like assistant. You know, the person who actually does the investigative work and tracking him down. Not like the hand-to-hand combat or whatever. (laughs) Hand-to-hand combat. (laughs) Boy, uh, I want to learn more about this kind of role in these positions and hunting people down and figuring things out. Oh, well, we're about to hear it right now. Oh, let's go. a whole lesson. Well, let's go. I'm ready for it. See, Tim Young felt confident he'd be able to track down the family. And it sounds like at the beginning, he really thought that he was going to find them in hiding somewhere. And he was going to be the one to break the case and like kind of make mm. his career. You know, he was kind of like a hot shot a little bit. <laughs> hot bo- it's like a hot shot investigator. He's like 25 and like doing his thing. And then there's McCormick, who's, you know, the old kind of grizzled veteran reporter. And they've teamed up together. And it's just fantastic. I want a movie to be made. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, is this, is this an action, like, martial <laughs> arts buddy cop movie that we're we're pitching right now? Pretty much, yeah. But Young tried all of the tricks of his trade, and he was unable to locate a shred of evidence that the family was alive beyond September 1995. There were none of the telltale signs. No activity in any of their bank accounts, at least since they went missing. No record of them traveling abroad to New Zealand or anywhere else for that matter. And he couldn't ferret out anyone who knew the family who seemed to have any idea of where they were. However, Young was able to obtain the records from John Garth's cell phone from the person who had taken over his estate. Young noticed right away that before the family left Austin, the cell phone wasn't really used that much. It was mostly John Garth communicating with family or business contacts. But during the month the family was in San Antonio in September 1995, there was a flurry of phone activity with over 200 ingoing and outgoing calls. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah. 
At the beginning, a slew of calls were placed to pharmacies and banks throughout San Antonio. To Young, it appeared to be a frantic attempt to get cash and medication after leaving Austin, suggesting that whatever this trip to San Antonio was, it was not planned. Okay, this is starting to make sense. Uh, This is falling in line with what we've talked about before, where if they have been kidnapped, she needs medication. And also, what are they trying to get at? They're trying to get at funds, the accounts, money. This, This is all falling together. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, at least for the medication result is resolved well, she needed to be kept alive for at least a certain amount of time, right? Yeah, so you can get that money. Yeah. Well, over the weeks, John Garth had also placed phone calls to airlines, travel agencies, jewelers, and coin dealers, all in San wow. Antonio. So McCormick and Young started going door to door to these places, trying to figure out what John Garth was up to. And eventually they struck gold, literally. They discovered that John Garth had contacted a coin dealer named Corey Tickner and requested to purchase $625,000 worth of gold coins. Like doubloons? Like, what, are you t- <laughs> what are we talking about here? Like gold coins? No. <laughs> what? Like, no. Like some serious were... treasure here. <laughs> no, they weren't doubloons. This was an assemblage of South African Krugerrands, American gold eagles, and Canadian maple leaves. That sounds like rich people business. Just, it is, or criminal business, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not obviously not everybody who who collects or has gold coins is a criminal or rich, <laughs> even. I don't know. Yeah, sure. But the coin dealer said that John wanted the coins quickly, but such a massive order would take time. So John Garth agreed to pick up $500,000 worth of the coins on Friday, September 29th with the coin dealer promising John that the remaining $125,000 worth would be delivered the following week. That's a lot of money in coins, man. It really is. The coin dealer said that he met John Garth at a bank in San Antonio where his identity was confirmed. So this time for sure, we know it was John Garth and not an imposter. Interesting. The coins were carefully counted, put into plastic tubes, put into a large black duffel bag, and loaded into the vehicle that John Garth was driving. Altogether, this big bag of coins would have weighed around 120 pounds. That's so heavy. Yeah. It's a lot of weight to be lugging around, It's like right? a person. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So this additional $125,000 worth of coins ended up being delivered to the dealer early over the weekend. So on Monday, the dealer called John Garth to tell him the good news and to arrange the transfer. But John Garth never answered the phone again, not for the coin dealer and not for anyone. According to the cell phone records, the last time John Garth's cell phone was used was Friday, September 29, 1995, at about 12.24 p.m., the same day John Garth picked up the coins from the dealer. In other words, he received the gold in the morning and had this short phone call in the afternoon, and that's the last time anyone had contact with the family. Now, finding out about this purchase of gold coins seemed to answer the question about what happened to that missing $625,000 reported by one of the organizations. Gold coins don't have serial numbers, and they are completely untraceable, and it's easy to turn them in for cash for pretty much anywhere. 
Yeah, they're they're literally made of gold. They're gold coins. Exactly. And you can go to a pawn dealer, a bank, lots of places will will hand you cash, whatever the estimated value is that day or however it works. Yeah. And they'll give you cash for your gold coin. But the real question was, what need did the Murray O'Hares have for a heavy, bulky pile of physical gold when they had access to this tangle web of their personal accounts and accounts for their organizations and allegedly at least offshore banking accounts. Yeah, it seems like a, a weird like move for them if they're trying to move a, a ton of gold coins, like literally the weight of a human being. Yeah. So in February of 1998, McCormick published another article with this new information. At this point, it's been a year and a half since McCormick first started reporting on this story, just to give you some sense of the scope of their investigation, as well as the amount of time it took to piece all these details together. With the story really heating up, yet another reporter got involved, Valerie Williams from NBC News. If you remember, John Clark's phone records indicated that he'd contacted multiple jewelry stores. She followed that lead and discovered a second bizarre purchase made by John Garth in San Antonio, a one-carat solitaire diamond for $6,660. That's a big rock. Yeah. The jewelry salesperson said that he remembered the purchase of the diamond because it was the first time he'd ever sold a diamond, especially one of that quality or expense, without the buyer being interested in it at all. Typically, people want to look at a diamond for themselves. They want to view it for the loop, probably examine multiple ones before they decide what they want to buy, right? Yeah, it's a long, drawn-out process. Yeah. But he was just kind of nonchalant about it. Well, what he did was he called in to confirm that they had what he wanted in stock. He came inside, paid, and left with it. He didn't even look at it. Wow. Yeah, so weird. That's weird. Also, did he look like John Garth? Yes, this appeared to be John Garth. He fit the description. Okay, cool. Well, next, Valerie Williams got a police sketch artist to work with a man who bought John Garth's Mercedes to create a sketch of the man who sold it to him. She then presented the results of her investigation on the TV news program Nightline. I don't think Nightline's around anymore, is it? But do you remember that in the 90s? Yeah, I do remember Nightline. (laughs) And in the program, John McCormick and Tim Young's work was also heavily featured. They aired the sketch during the broadcast in the off chance that someone might recognize the John Garth imposter. And somehow Mm. it worked. Really? Yeah, shortly after the segment aired... John McCormick received a call from someone in Florida claiming to recognize the man in the sketch. Whoa. Okay. (laughs) Do tell. I'm very curious. The caller's name was Bob Fry, and he said the sketch looked like his younger brother, Danny Fry. Bob said that in September of 1995, Danny Fry had traveled from Florida to Texas for some sort of job. Bob said that Danny was working with two other men— One, a man whose name he did not know. The other man's name was David Waters. Okay, all right. Now, you know what that name is. And McCormick had been so intricately involved in the Murray O'Hare family's business that the name did ring a bell. Sure. He knew that he'd been the office manager. He'd pleaded guilty to this big theft. But this was the first time that David Waters' name had come up in his investigation into the family's disappearance. So, you know, he's got like, bing, bing, bing. Yeah, alarm bells should be going off. Exactly. 
Bob told McCormick that he wasn't sure what the job exactly was, but it involved him and the other men staying at an extended stay hotel called the Warren Inn in San Antonio. He said that the job must have paid well because during the first couple of weeks he was in Texas, Danny had sent thousands of dollars to his girlfriend back home in Florida. Got all these gold coins moving around, selling Porsches. That's a lot of money, yeah. Yeah, bank transactions. It sounds, it sounds a like diamond. things are, yeah, a diamond. Yeah. Oh my goodness. On September 30th, he had called his daughter from David Waters' apartment in Austin to wish her a happy birthday. On the phone call, he said that the job was almost finished and he'd be headed home soon. But Danny never returned from his trip to Texas, and no one had seen or heard from him since. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. His family had filed two missing persons reports. One with the Austin Police Department, since that was his last known location. But Bob said nothing much had been done to investigate his brother's disappearance. Hmm. I wonder if something bad happened to this guy. Ooh, you think so? I do. It sounds like a Quentin Tarantino situation at this point. (laughs) But there was more. Bob said that Danny seemed increasingly nervous and upset the first few weeks that he was in Texas. In fact, in early September, Danny mailed Bob a letter that said that if anything should happen to him, Bob should go to the authorities with David Waters' name because he was the ringleader of whatever the operation was that he was involved with. Okay, so maybe things aren't going too well initially. Uh, something's gone awry. Exactly. But also, this David Waters guy, he's plugged in. He has a network of, of underworld people who are willing to help him out with these types of criminal activities. You're already, you're, all, oh, you're always on the money, Detective <laughs> Shea Butter, because that's exactly what happened from here on out. A couple weeks later... Danny called him, told him everything was all right, and asked him to burn the letter, which Bob did. When Danny went missing, Bob contacted David Waters to ask him where he was. I mean, that was the only name he had for his contact in Texas. And Waters, of course, told him that he didn't know. Waters did say that he had some of Danny's things, and he asked for Bob's address so he could mail the items back home. But Bob said that this was just a ploy for his address because David Waters, along with another man, showed up to his home, threatened him with a gun, and demanded that Bob give him the letter or explain what had been written in it. Oh, man. Bob said that he spent hours trying to convince the men that he'd burned the letter without reading it before the men finally left. That sounds very serious. Yes. And so McCormick and Young start tracking down all of these new leads from this tip that they get from Bob Fry. They saw that the Warren Inn, an extended-stay hotel, 
was located in northwest San Antonio. It was within blocks of the bank where the gold coins were exchanged, a video store where John Garth had rented movies, the pharmacy that had fulfilled Madeline's prescriptions. So it checked out that the Warren Inn could be the location where the Murray O'Hares were staying during that first month after leaving Austin. This is ground zero. This is the base of operations. Yes, that's what they're thinking. They also started digging into the background of David Waters. Of course, they were immediately struck by the nature of the serious violent crimes that David Waters had been previously charged with, including murder. Young poked around his finances and found out that although Waters was jobless throughout 1995, in September, he'd suddenly purchased himself a Cadillac with cash and purchased his girlfriend, a woman named Patty Jo Steffens, a new truck. So he's got this sudden windfall of cash right around the same time as Danny Fry did, according to his brother, and around the same time that the family went missing. They also confirmed a connection between David Waters and this new character, Danny Fry. They found out that Waters and Fry had actually met each other in a Florida prison when they were both doing time. Oh, wow. Yeah. However, unlike Waters, Fry was a small-time con man whose convictions were mostly on drunk driving charges, and he had no history of violence. They got a hold of Fry's phone records and saw that Fry and Waters had called each other with increasing frequency in the months before the family's disappearance, as if they were planning something. Mm. And while looking into David Waters' other contacts, paying close attention to his prison buddies that he'd been in contact with during 1995, they came up with another name, Gary Paul Carr. Okay, so these are seemingly just connections that... David Waters had with these individuals from prison and other convicted criminals who he's now networking into whatever's going on now. Yes, exactly. Like Waters, Gary Carr had a long history of violent crimes. Now, a lot of sources weirdly gloss over Carr's early charges, so I had to go dig in in old newspapers in Illinois to try to find some of the details of his earlier crimes, and this is what I could kind of piece together. In 1966, he was charged with indecency with a child. In 1974, Gary Carr, along with an accomplice, were involved in a two-state crime spree that included the theft of at least two vehicles, the armed robbery of several liquor stores, and three sexual assaults. Don't like that. Mm-mm. In all three assaults, the victims had been kidnapped at gunpoint. Okay, so kidnapping is a big part of his criminal record. Yes. Which it sounds like there's some kidnapping going on here. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So that if you were mixing it up in prison, this might be a guy you might want to involve in this kind of plan. Okay. Mm -hmm. Somebody Mm -hmm. who has some, some history with it. Yeah. Well, Gary Carr ended up taking a plea deal and received a 21 year sentence, which he served in the Illinois State Penitentiary, where he met David Waters. And this is just a weird detail I found in Ted Dracos's book, Ungodly. But you know that whole opening sequence of the Blues Brothers where Jake is being released from prison? Yeah. Oh, no, that's one of my favorite movies. I know that scene for sure. Yeah. Well, that was filmed on location at Joliet State Prison. It definitely was. And it's a historic prison. Well, that's where Gary Paul Carr was incarcerated 
and he can be seen on screen as one of the prisoners in the background. No way. Yeah. And that like first little opening sequence. And I don't know. I actually went back and, and watched the Did sequence you? to see if I could just, I don't know, just to see what I could see. And it's he's either one of the men that Jake is walking past when he's being escorted out of the prison. So there's like other prisoners in cells as he's walking by. Or wow. he's one of the prisoners in the yard. That's really cool that they filmed it in the prison with real prisoners. With real prisoners. Wow. And one of them is this monster Gary Paul Carr. It's and very crazy. It's very crazy. It's uh, just such a weird little random detail in this in this case. Yeah, it is. Gary Carr served the full sentence for the crime spree, that full 21 years, and he was released, guess what, in early 1995, just a few months before the family disappeared. Young and McCormick saw that Carr and Waters had become quite friendly since Carr's release and that there had also been a lot of communication between them just before the family went missing. So again, exactly like we said before, he knew that Gary Carr was out of prison and had experience in this and was available for this this kind of job. So he did like 21 years in prison and then immediately got out two months later involved in another scheme kidnapping situation. Wow. At this point, McCormick and Young's investigation had uncovered plenty of evidence to suggest that the family had been kidnapped in Austin by David Waters, Gary Carr, and Danny Fry, and held for a month at the Warren Inn in San Antonio. During that time, the kidnappers had sold John Garth's car for the cash and forced him to purchase the diamond as well as the gold coins. There was absolutely no evidence that showed that the family was still alive after the gold coins were received. The possibility that this was voluntary and that the whole family was living in secret luxury on an island somewhere couldn't be entertained any longer. This was obviously a kidnapping and probably a triple homicide. And if you added missing person Danny Fry into the mix, you've got a possible quadruple homicide. Yeah, it sounds like something happened to that Danny Fry guy. Yeah. Now, McCormick and Young had been working on this investigation together at this point for 19 months and they had worked really well together. But as the seriousness of the situation dawned on them, they found that they had completely different opinions on what to do about it. Young wanted to go to the police and hand over everything they'd uncovered. He was convinced that the Austin Police Department would take the case seriously if they would only look at all of this convincing evidence. Mm. But McCormick didn't think it would be enough to make the police see reason. Instead, McCormick wanted to go public with the information and publish an article laying out the full story. Unfortunately, this disagreement caused a rift between McCormick and Young, and they decided to go their separate ways, each moving forward with his own plans. Well, that's too bad. It sounded like they were breaking ground on this case and uncovering a lot of things that nobody had up until this point. It sounds like a breakup of the dream team, so to speak. Yeah, it was. And it's really interesting how things ended up working out for both of them. You see, Young went straight to the police. In August of 1998, he compiled a letter to the lead detective on the case, Detective Stephen Baker. He laid out everything he knew. He detailed the cell phone records, the purchase of the gold coins, the Warren Inn, and how the case seemed to be tied to David Waters, Gary Carr, and missing person Danny Fry. He included the full names, dates of birth, addresses, driver's license numbers, and other identifying information for all three subjects. This was literally the entire case handed to 
the detective on a silver platter. And how did that play out? Let me get uh, like, uh, sure. Yeah, they went in and they they ferreted out all this stuff and, and broke the case, right? No. So what mm. actually happened? So he sent over the letter and he's like, oh, like, you know, <laughs> feeling good about what he'd done. And he immediately almost gets a call back from Detective Baker. So he's like, oh, good. Victor, he's taking me seriously. Great. We're going to have yeah. this conversation. But the first thing that the detective said to him was, where do you guys get this stuff? Young later told the Austin Chronicle, quote, it was clear to me that he didn't even read the whole three page letter. He was still under the impression that they were sipping martinis in New Zealand. It was disheartening getting that reaction. (sighs) So still nothing from the APD. That sucks. So he tried going to the FBI at first, but he was similarly rebuffed. He tried talking to William Murray, who in turn tried to use his own political sway to appeal to politicians and senators. William even pressured then-governor of Texas George Bush, who was a personal friend of his, to send in the Texas Rangers. But the Austin Police Department ended up convincing the Rangers that there was nothing here to investigate. Really? Yeah. (laughs) I mean, mean, I'm pretty sure that there is definitely things here to investigate. Yeah. There was someone who would listen, though, an ally from an unlikely place. Special Agent Ed Martin of the IRS. You see, things over at the IRS had been bopping since they'd relaunched their investigation and seized the family's house and belongings. Bopping, you say? Mm Mm-hmm. In early 1999, they held a public auction to settle the debt they said that the family owed them. Everything was sold off. Their record collection, their art, all of Madeline's journals, and even the house itself. It's actually sad. The auction only drew in a measly $25,000 total on the $260,000 debt that the IRS claimed. Yikes, that's uh, paltry. Yeah. You would, you would hope that more would come in for all of that. Well, they definitely hope so. But IRS Special Agent Ed Martin wasn't so sure that the case was as simple as it had been made out to be. He'd been paying attention to John McCormick's articles about the family, and none of it added up to him. And his own investigation into the Murray O'Hare's complex financial affairs had uncovered that in the month of September 1995, Madeline, John Garth, and Robin's credit cards had been maxed out from requests for cash advances. And money had been taken from the family's various personal and business accounts. About $70,000 altogether. Okay, so money is flowing somewhere. It's being withdrawn and going to somebody's pockets. Yes. And that figure would be in addition to the $500,000 worth of gold coins the $15,000 from the selling of John Carth's Mercedes and the $6,000 for the diamond, as well as the other little, you know, amounts here and there. In his expert opinion, it all looked like it was evidence of the family being extorted, not planning for some getaway. So when Tim Young came to Ed Martin and asked for his help, he was immediately on board. He tried going to the APD and even the DA's office, But he was stonewalled just like everyone else. So he decided to go over their heads and begin contacting people from agencies all over, the ATF, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the FBI. And he started building a team of people who were willing to help with the investigation. 
Meanwhile, McCormick moved forward with his article publishing the links between the Murray O'Hares and missing person Danny Fry. And he named the person he suspected to be behind it all, David Waters. Okay, cool. Like, we have somebody who is coming forward and being like, David Waters is at the heart of this. Yeah, basically. I mean, he didn't come out and say David Waters kidnapped and killed these people, but it was certainly the implication of the article. At this point, Waters had spoken to some reporters about the family and their disappearance before, but now that he'd been labeled as a suspect by a respected reporter, his reaction was not to go into hiding or try to sue the San Antonio Express News. It was to go on his own kind of media tour. He started basically shopping his story around to different places. He reached out to publications like the Dallas Morning News and the Austin Chronicle. He was even interviewed in a TV segment for America's Most Wanted. Interesting. Uh, Is he trying to get like a book deal or something at this point? It's weird that you say that because he even wrote and I guess self-published a 200-page book about his innocence and how horrible the family was. He accused the family of framing him for the missing $55,000 and said that the family was probably also responsible for the earlier thefts of the computer and other supplies, as well as the bearer bond. So he's he's saying that the family was involved in all of these shady thefts that it kind of looked like he was involved with. It takes a lot of gall to like step forward and, and present these things the way he's doing right now. That's very bold of him. Oh, very bold. I mean, over and over, he repeated the same story that the family had fled to New Zealand and were in hiding. In fact, he claimed to have proof of this. Documents that he said referenced a New Zealand bank account, letters from the family that seemed to suggest their desire to move to New Zealand, and receipts from expenses he said were towards the planning of this move. The documents were in fact legitimate. There were ones that he'd stolen during his time as the American Atheist office manager. And they'd been helping him sow seeds of doubt about the family for years now. In fact, back a year or two before McCormick's article naming him as a suspect, Waters so convinced Mimi Schwartz, a respected writer and reporter for Vanity Fair, that the New Zealand angle was true that she traveled to New Zealand and spent weeks searching for them. Really? Yes. Vanity Fair spent tens of thousands of dollars on this lead for Mimi Schwartz to find zero evidence that the family was there. (laughs) That's crazy. Yes. Well, in late 1998, Waters showed reporter Robert Bryce of the Austin Chronicle the same documents, although Bryce didn't seem nearly as impressed with them. David Waters also admitted to knowing Danny Fry and admitted that Danny had come to stay with him for a while around September 1995. But he said that Danny had eventually taken off with some other men and that he had never heard from him after that. But soon, David Waters' house of cards would fall because McCormick was about to make the biggest break in the case yet. Now, McCormick is a very humble man, and he later described this whole thing as a complete fluke. But truthfully, this was just incredible investigative journalism. He was glancing through the day's news items when a short article out of Dallas caught his eye. The article was about an unidentified body that had been found on the bank of the Trinity River in Seagoville three years earlier. 
Now, Siegelville is a suburb of Dallas, and it's about 200 miles north of Austin and 275 miles north of San Antonio, so a good distance away from everything else that's happening in the story so far. The body was an adult Caucasian male who had been found completely nude and whose head and hands had been sawn off and were missing from the scene. Although the head and hands were removed, presumably to prevent identification, there was no attempt to hide the body. It was just kind of out in the open, especially weird because it was right on the bank of the Trinity River. So whoever the killer was could have just rolled the body into the river, but they didn't. They left it exposed on the riverbank. Oh, man. This seems extremely brutal. Uh, this almost sounds like a mob hit or or something. Or like a drug hit. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's kind of what their assumption was at the beginning. Yeah. The body had no tattoos or scars, and all the medical examiner could ascertain was that he had been between 35 and 45 years old. Even with such vague details, the body hadn't fit the description of any missing person from the Dallas area. The Dallas County Sheriff's Office had tried working the case, but with no leads in the three years since the body had been found, the case had gone cold. What piqued McCormick's interest was that the body had been discovered on October 2nd, 1995, the same weekend that Danny Fry had disappeared. So what, do we have like a dead kidnapper at this point? That's what it's looking like, yeah. Hmm. And so in January of 1999, McCormick published his article about how Danny Fry, believed to be one of the Murray O'Hare's kidnappers, had been found dead. And out of all of McCormick's articles about the case, and he ended up publishing over a hundred in total, I believe from the beginning to the end. Wow. But this is the one that directly led to the solving of the case because it caused David Waters' ex-girlfriend, Patty Jo Steffens, to step forward. All right. So we have an ex-partner who is providing more information. It always seems like that's it the way it always goes. goes this way, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, the two were still together back in September 1995, and Patty Jo had lived in fear of David Waters ever since, so much so that she'd been afraid to go to the authorities. But McCormick's article reporting Danny Fry's murder and mutilation had confirmed her worst suspicions. She went to the Austin office of the FBI, where she spoke to Special Agent Donna Cowling. Patty Jo said that she had the evidence they needed to catch David Waters solve the murder of Danny Fry, as well as find out what happened to Madeline, John, Garth, and Robin. Okay, that sounds like a huge break in the case. Huge break in the case. But before she agreed to talk, she asked for police protection in the short term, as well as witness protection in the long term, because that's how scared of David Waters she was, which made a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, and and that's a responsible request, I think. He sounds like a dangerous guy. Yes. She also asked for and received immunity from prosecution for her involvement or knowledge of any of the crimes, which ended up probably being a smart move for her, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. After reaching an agreement, Patty Jo told her story. She said that David had absolutely despised Madeline, but what had truly enraged him was the article she had written about him, particularly how she'd included how he'd urinated in his mother's face during his assault on her. What? This was something that he was really upset that she had let the world know about. As far as I'm aware, 
all of the allegations she made in the American Atheists magazine as far as his legal charges were all true. Patty Joe said that after he read the article, he told her how he wanted to torture Madeline by cutting off her toes one by one and then kill her, but only after he'd stolen all of her money. Patty Joe confirmed that in August of 1995, Danny Fry and Gary Carr came to stay with David at his apartment in Austin. She said they left together late in the month, and then over the next few weeks, they'd come back for a short visit or to drop off stuff before leaving again. During some of these visits, David showed her a perfect diamond and handed her an envelope with $20,000 inside. She last saw Danny Fry on September 30th, the same day he had contacted his family for the final time. She said that all three men showed up at David Waters' apartment in Austin, and Carr and Waters seemed totally fine. They were joking around, having a good time. But Fry seemed quiet and withdrawn. She said that she helped him pack up his suitcase for his trip back to Florida, and then she left to go run an errand. When she returned, the men were gone, and she noticed that Fry's suitcase was still there, but it was empty. She said Carr and Waters returned later, and when she asked where Danny was, they told her that he'd left with some friends. A few days later, she said she noticed a plastic bag near their front door, and when she looked inside, she saw a washcloth and three pairs of sneakers, all covered in blood. She said she never saw Danny Fry again, but she did see David Waters cleaning his glasses with one of Danny Fry's t-shirts. There's a lot going on here, for sure. But uh, there's a moment there where she's talking about a diamond. Seemingly the diamond we're talking about in the case? Yes. Okay. All of this seems to corroborate everything that's been going on. So she seems like she has good details on the rest of everything that we know about what's going on in the case, the family, the disappearance, all of it. Yeah, she has like every bit of missing information that they were looking for this whole yeah. time. And she also had additional information about those gold coins. Oh. You see, there was one thing in this whole investigation that really bothered people. Where was all this money? Waters and Carr had stolen around $100,000 in cash from the family, along with the $500,000 worth of gold coins. Sure. Now, at first, Waters and Carr had seemingly been brazen with their spending. According to Patty Joe, the men had spent thousands purchasing vehicles, fancy clothes, and a luxuriant stay at the Four Seasons Hotel. But after this initial spending spree, the two had continued living very frugally. In fact, Waters was in trouble for not making the restitution payments to American atheists back from the theft from, you know, several years ago. Yeah. And he was about to be evicted from his apartment for non-payment. So it certainly didn't look like they were sitting on piles of money. Everyone involved in the investigation was completely perplexed by this. And in fact, it was one of the reasons why the case took so long to solve. Well, Patty Joe had the explanation. The reason why Waters and Carr acted like they didn't have $500,000 worth of gold coins was that they didn't. The coins had been almost immediately stolen from them. Oh, wow. Yes. Okay. All right. The plot thickens. Patty Joe said that after the men obtained the coins, they asked her to rent a public storage locker to keep them in, and she did. 
renting locker number 1640 at a place called Burnett Road Self-Storage in Austin. She also purchased a Master Lock brand padlock to use on the locker. She said the men cashed in about $80,000 worth of the coins before David dropped the rest off of the loot in the storage locker. They returned less than two days later to retrieve the coins to find out that someone had picked the lock and taken them. Whoa. Just boom, half a million dollars worth of gold gone. (sighs) That is so much money. It's so much money and it's so insane. And do you want to know what happened to the money? Yes. How how did they pick the lock? (laughs) Who knew? Like, so someone must have known that they were holding these coins at this location. It seems like an inside job. It absolutely was not. This was a completely random event and it is so bizarre and we know these details because the fbi eventually tracked down the people responsible for the theft this is what happened that makes it so much more interesting i know it turns out that a random group of thieves from san antonio came up to austin looking for stuff to steal they happened to have a skeleton key for the particular kind of padlock that patty joe had purchased And their M.O. was to go to storage facilities and public lockers, open up whichever locks they could with that skeleton key they had, and take what was inside and run. Now they'd either keep the stolen goods for themselves or sell them. On this day, the group drove up to Austin and randomly chose the very same storage facility, Burnett Road Self-Storage, to rob. Once inside, they used the skeleton key on the lock on number 1640 and discovered a very heavy black bag. Without even looking inside, they grabbed the bag and took off. Theirs was the only locker secured with a type of lock that could be opened with the type of key that the thieves had. The skeleton key you were talking about. Yes. Yeah, okay. and thus their locker in the whole place was the only one that was robbed. What luck. I mean, for them, I oh, guess. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the thieves. So the group of thieves stopped at a Burger King parking lot to evaluate their latest haul. They f- saw that the bag was filled with plastic tubes that looked like gold coins. Yeah, half a million dollars of gold coins. Yes. Jeez. They drove back home to San Antonio. They got a book on coin collecting and confirmed that the coins were indeed real. So they did their research? Yes. They split up the gold three ways, and over the next two years, each spent his share lavishly on rental houses, new cars, electronics, trips to Vegas, strip clubs, guns, like you name it, these people were buying. By the time the FBI tracked these three thieves down, over four years had passed and the gold was long gone. Only one of the coins was ever recovered. One of the men had a 24-carat Canadian maple leaf fashioned into a necklace for his aunt, who then handed it over to FBI. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yes, so bizarre. Well, finally, Patty Jo told the FBI about how she'd heard the men talking about renting a storage unit. So they had the storage locker for the gold coins. This is a separate, larger storage unit. Okay. And this was around the end of September 1995. She knew that they went there with a spray canister. She gave the canister over to Agent Cowling, who ran tests on it that confirmed the presence of bleach. Why would you need to spray bleach inside a storage locker? 
The only reason they could think of was to try to destroy blood evidence. By this time, Agent Cowling, who was the one who was doing all the interviews with Patty Jo Steffens, she had gotten in touch with IRS agent Ed Martin, and she joined up with the team that he was building to actually investigate this family's disappearance. Oh, man. Super team reuniting. Here we go. Yeah. And I just want to say this team also included people from the Dallas County Sheriff's Office. Like, they were involved from, as soon as McCormick went to them with the idea of of Danny Fry as their unidentified murder victim, I mean, they were in it from the start, and they, they continued working the case to the very end. Well, they got a search warrant for the storage unit that Patty Joe said the men had used. At first, it seemed like there was nothing to find, until they removed a section of the aluminum flooring where they found a tiny speck of blood. William provided a DNA sample for comparison, and the FBI lab confirmed that the spot on the floor was a mixture of Madeline and John Garth's blood. Their suspicions became that the family had been either killed or dismembered inside that storage unit, perhaps to ease in the transport of bodies. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. There seems like there's been dismemberment with other people's bodies in this case already. Exactly. Danny Fry, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, they knew that the Warren Inn was the best bet for the place where the family had been held in captivity for an entire month. So they went to the hotel and dug through their files. In records dating from September 1995, they found an application for a unit along with vehicle logs and other receipts listing the names of David Waters and Gary Carr. Okay. So this is like the net closing upon Mm -hmm. these two men. With all of this information in hand, Ed Martin got a warrant approved, and a big team from several agencies raided David Waters' apartment on March 24, 1999. Now, the search uncovered books and other items he'd stolen from the family while he worked for them, but no real physical evidence connected him to their disappearance. However, they did find 119 rounds of ammunition, along with the pictures of himself shooting a gun at a gun range. As a convicted felon, it was against the law for him to possess ammo or even shoot a gun. They eventually discovered that he had also sent a gun to his brother back in Illinois, another federal crime for a convicted felon to move firearms across state lines. Yeah, you certainly can't do that. Yeah. So finally, David Waters was arrested. Yay! He's been finally apprehended. He was charged with violating the terms of his deferred adjudication from way back from when he had the theft from the American Atheist Organization. This was violating the terms of non-payment, but also for being in contact with a family, which he was prohibited from. He was slapped with all of these new gun charges as well, on top of the violation of the deferred adjudication charge. For violating the terms of his deferred adjudication, he was sentenced to 60 years in Texas state prison. Now, he almost certainly wouldn't have had to serve the full sentence. He'd probably be paroled in 12 to 15 years, but that's still a pretty long time. 12 to 15 isn't isn't happy. You're not happy with that, right? For the gun charges, he was sentenced to an additional eight years in federal prison. The charges were stacked instead of concurrent. So he'd have to serve out that deferred adjudication sentence here in Texas. 
and then he'd move on to federal prison for the weapons yeah. charges. Yeah, they're separated, federal versus state. Okay. Exactly. But cool. either way, this meant that authorities had the time to continue pursuing the Murray O'Hare case with David Waters safely behind bars. Yeah, they have him. He's in the books at this point. He has a sentence that he has to serve. So now we can we can work on everything else that's going on and, and figure out what really happened to the family. Geez, please tell us. I hope we have a resolution to what happened to the family. With David Waters behind bars, they then go to the next person who seemed to be responsible or involved in the disappearance, Gary Carr. At this juncture, federal agents still didn't have enough to get a search warrant or an arrest warrant on, on him. So they decided to just show up at his apartment and see if he would speak to them. And he agreed. They told him how they knew he was connected to David Waters and how they'd found his name on documents at the Warren Inn, the location where it looked like the family had been held. But Carr shrugged everything off. He said that, yes, he was with Madeline, John Garth, Robin, and David Waters at the Warren Inn. But he said that the family had hired him and David to be there. He said that the family was planning on fleeing the country and they'd hired David to assist them with the arrangements. And David had hired him on to help with security. Mm. So this is very clearly a manufactured alibi that he had worked with with David Waters to yeah. portray. That's what it sounds like. It sounds like it's matching up with kind of the ideas that we've heard about the family, fleeing the country, all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Just after he gives this explanation, the agents asked to do a security sweep of the apartment, and they discovered a revolver on the nightstand in the bedroom and later a second gun. A second gun? Mm -hmm. Wow, there's a lot of guns. Oh, yeah. So same thing for Carr, of course. As an ex-convict, he cannot have weapons in his possession, and he was arrested. Carr's previous convictions, combined with the new felony of the possession of two firearms, meant that he was going to go away for life. And so to try to save himself, Carr decided to start talking. Okay, so we're getting to the heart of it right now. Yes. Finally. Now, while he maintained that he and David Waters had been hired on to help the family escape, he said that the situation between them and the family devolved. He said that eventually... Waters killed the whole family and buried them all in a remote ranch called Cooksey Ranch, 90 miles west of San Antonio near Camp Wood. He said that he, of course, had nothing to do with the murders himself, but he did know the location where the bodies were buried, because Waters had taken him there months later. Carr drew up a very detailed map of exactly where he claimed that the bodies had been buried. And so in April of 1999, Ed Martin, Donna Cowling, along with a team made of Texas Rangers, FBI agents, and other law enforcement agents, descended upon Cooksey Ranch with Carr's map in hand. They brought out cadaver dogs, used ground-penetrating radar, and helicopters with infrared sensors, as well as completed foot searches of the entire property. They were able to find pretty much the exact location that Gary Carr had marked as the burial site. Oh, wow, really? Yes, and yet, the three-day search came up with absolutely nothing. After all that? After all that. I thought we had the location. Yeah, we did. But no bodies, somehow. Uh... So, with no bodies, the U.S. Attorney's Office was forced to proceed with the cases they did have against David Waters and Gary Carr. 
By this time, Carr had stopped cooperating completely, and without the bodies being found, any deal he was hoping for was taken off the table anyway. He was offered a 20-year sentence if he agreed to testify against David Waters, but he refused. He stuck to his story that he was only there for security at the victim's request. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Carr was ultimately charged with kidnapping, extortion, money laundering, and two other counts. And his trial began in May of 2000. Some of the star witnesses against him were his ex-wife, who very much like Patty, Patty Jo Steffens, had lots of evidence against him about sure. especially a lot of his spending during this time. There was also Ellen Johnson of the American Atheist who came to testify against him. Patty Jo Steffens herself testified, as well as all three men who had stolen the gold coins from the storage locker. So that's basically how we get the details of what happened. Yeah, so we have a pretty good idea about everything that happened, how it transpired, but we're still waiting for the convictions that we need. Now, for the defense, they also called a few witnesses who claimed to have seen Madeline, John Garth, and Robin alive and well. One claimed she served them drinks at a bar in San Antonio, and the other claimed he'd seen them at a restaurant in Romania. What? Yes. And this was actually kind of common. There were several sort of almost like Elvis sightings around the world of Madeline, John Garth, and Robin that, of course, helped to encourage people with this idea that they were still alive. But in the end, the jury found Gary Carr guilty of everything, except for kidnapping. Now, obviously, the way this worked was kind of strange because you have to ask how the extortion and money laundering, which he was convicted for sure. how that took place if there wasn't also the kidnapping yeah. which he was not found guilty for but that is what the jury found yeah it's weird he is convicted but at the same time like how did this all transpire what's the truth of the matter well the good thing is that either way gary carr was sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment okay so gary so carr he's gone. is he's he's out of here he gone he gone Meanwhile, David Waters had also been charged with five counts, including kidnapping, extortion, and robbery. Yeah, this jerk. Well, his case was also set to move forward for trial. However, something kind of strange happened. You see, by this point, he'd already been serving his sentence in the Texas state prison system. And shockingly, he didn't seem to like it very much. Oh, you don't say? <laughs> I bet you don't. Yeah, well... I mean, as we know, Texas prisons have the reputation of being pretty bleak, especially in comparison to federal prisons, which are 
usually regarded as having better accommodations, they're more clean, and have better food and medical help for prisoners. Oh, poor him. That last part was especially important to Waters, who by this point had been diagnosed with hepatitis C. Oh, okay. That is a serious disease that uh, you don't want to be stuck in the Texas prison system with that going on. Yeah, exactly. And if he was found not guilty on the kidnapping and extortion charges, that meant he'd have to continue serving his sentence here in Texas for at least the next decade or so. And he did not want to do that. Yeah, he didn't have time. Yeah. So after all that, David Waters finally decided to talk in exchange for a deal that would allow him to transfer to federal custody. And so, in January 2001, he led authorities back to Cooksey Ranch in Shackles, taking them exactly to the same location that Carr had sent them to two years before. But this time, the dogs hit on something. The person leading the recovery team was famed forensic anthropologist Dr. David Glassman. And of course, Shay and I are anthropologists. We got to do a little anthropology shout out. Sure. At the time, he was the chairman of the anthropology department at Southwest Texas State University. I believe he also started the forensic department there at that university, um, a huge like leviathan of the forensic anthropology world um really cool guy and he actually brought along a whole team of students to help with the excavation and this was a very large excavation we're talking several bodies at this point yeah they're trying to find them yeah Yeah. and after some digging dr glassman and his team discovered the bodies of three individuals buried in a single grave Basically placed all one on top of each other. Oh, stacked up? Yeah. It was a male and two females. Identification was simple. One of the bodies had a prosthetic steel hip, and Madeline had had her hip replaced a few years before her disappearance. The serial number on the prosthetic matched the one listed in Madeline's medical records. Bam. Later, a combination of DNA and dental records would confirm the identification of Robin and John Garth's bodies as well. Finally, after five and a half years, the Murray O'Hares had been found. All three bodies had been dismembered after death, with their legs sawn off just below the hip joint. And again, this was most likely to aid in the transport of their bodies from that storage the Warren, unit. From the storage unit, yes. Yeah. To the location at Cooksey Ranch where the bodies were ultimately buried. The bones also looked slightly burnt, as if they'd been exposed to a short but hot fire. Madeline and Robin's bodies had no obvious signs of trauma, and Dr. Glassman concluded that they had both been manually strangled. So just to be clear, it doesn't look like any of them, especially Madeline, suffered the torture that David Waters had been fantasizing about, at least according to Patty Jo Steffens. We didn't see that. Their bodies actually show no evidence of trauma, which is why it's believed that they were manually strangled. So at least hopefully a quick death or as quick as possible. Unless you figure in the month of captivity leading up to their murders. Sure, yeah, that, yeah, that whole torment. Unlike Madeline and Robin's bodies, John Garth's body did have signs of trauma. He had multiple hairline fractures around his skull consistent with blunt force trauma. And a plastic bag was wrapped around his head. 
almost like a suffocation implement. Perhaps, but we actually will talk about why that bag was wrapped around his head a little bit later. Okay. But there was another find out in that remote ranch. The team discovered an extra pair of hands and a skull with one bullet hole in the back. (gasps) DNA testing confirmed that these belonged to Danny Fry. Oh, wow. Okay, so we found the missing skull in the hands. Yep. The remains of the Murray O'Hares were cremated and buried together in an unmarked grave at a non-denominational cemetery in Austin on March 23, 2001. Amongst the attendees was the U.S. attorney who prosecuted, who prosecuted Carr, IRS agent Ed Martin, FBI agent Donna Cowling, and William Murray. So basically all of the big names in this story. Although William brought along a preacher for support, no prayers were said over them, per Madeline's express wishes. A few months after the recovery of the bodies, David Waters was sentenced to 20 years in prison in exchange for locating the missing family and pleading guilty to extortion. The sentence was again stacked with his previous charges, but he was allowed to transfer to federal prison, which was what he wanted in the first place. However, it didn't really end up mattering much in the end, as David Waters died from lung cancer in federal custody just two years later. Okay, so he's gone. He's gone. Well, I guess we don't have to worry about him. That's right. I mean, he's out of here, yeah. Although we don't know every bit of the story, enough was gleaned from the evidence and Karin Waters' own statements to get an idea of how the kidnapping and murders took place. David's position as the office manager for American Atheists had clued him into how much money the family had access to, as well as their significant legal troubles, and quite frankly, he thought the organization would be ripe for the picking. He began stealing things, including the documents he would show reporters to try to prove that they were headed to New Zealand. He probably stole the $55,000 originally thinking that the family was about to lose their IRS battle and that Johnson lawsuit, and that his little theft would get lost in the shuffle. He also knew that there was significant bias against Madeline and the family in law enforcement and in the general public, which would play into his favor. And of course, Mm. that's exactly what happened. We don't know exactly how long David thought about kidnapping the family, but he began seriously planning it sometime after Madeline's article about him came out. He first contacted his old prison buddy, Gary Carr, with his idea to kidnap and extort the family. Waters and Carr decided to get Danny Fry involved as well. Danny, again, was a very nonviolent, small-time criminal, unlike Waters and Carr, and he was described as being generally very likable and friendly. In fact, Waters and Carr chose him specifically because they thought his demeanor would put the family at ease. Waters admitted to investigators that they planned to kill him from the very start. They already marked him as somebody that had to go. Yep. That's cold. Very cold. The kidnapping itself mostly took place on the morning of Sunday, August 27th, so the day before that note was found by the rest of the staff. Madeline and John Garth were at the American Atheist headquarters when Gary Carr and Danny Fry knocked on the front door posing as delivery men. They pulled out guns and subdued and subdued the mother and son, and then let David Waters inside the building. Robin arrived soon after and was similarly taken. 
the men drove the family to their home in a rented van and told them to pack their belongings for a few weeks away from home. While they were at the house, Robin made Madeline a sandwich, which was later found sitting partially eaten on the kitchen table. Yeah, you had mentioned there was some food left out. That's right. And of course, in the mix of them trying to pack up some belongings and everything, they ended up forgetting Madeline's medications. The men drove Robin's Porsche to the airport in an attempt to fool police that the family had fled, which we know later worked in their favor. They then drove down to San Antonio and ultimately to a two-bedroom apartment at the Warren Inn Hotel. For the next month, Madeline and Robin were forced to stay in hiding inside the apartment, always watched by at least one of the men. John Garth had been allowed much more freedom. He was the one making the arrangements for Madeline's medications and was allowed to go to the video store and rent movies for them, go to the grocery store for food, and of course, arrange the cash advances and the purchase of the gold coins and all of those other things. He even went on a quick trip to New Jersey with Gary Carr to help with the transfer of the funds needed to purchase the gold. In their free time, the family was allowed to cook, watch movies, and play card games and video games. There is no evidence that John Garth, Madeline, or Robin tried to contact authorities or tried to escape. Most people believe that John Garth truly believed that once he delivered the gold coins to their abductors, that he and his mother and his niece would be set free, which is why he was so compliant. Yeah. But, it sounds like they were convinced that they were going to be okay at yeah, the end of it. They really were. But, but uh, that's not the case. Uh, they had no idea what was coming for them. Yeah. But the month of captivity must have been particularly torturous for Robin. From David Waters' statements, the family was absolutely terrified of Gary Carr, and he continually threatened Robin with sexual assault as uh, a way to get her to comply to his demands. Now, according to some sources, these were only threats, but according to others, including Ted Dracos's book, Ungodly, Carr would take her to the other room and force her to perform oral sex on him telling her that if she told her mother or John Garth what he was doing, that he would kill them all. Man. So just, just an absolutely horrific situation all around. Wow. I mean, it's, it's dark and it sucks and this is horrific, but also it kind of lines up with their past behavior and their, their criminal convictions that they've had before. Yeah, it absolutely did. I mean, Waters himself, he had been charged with burglary, forgery, all of these sort of charges related to stealing of money. Mm -hmm. And he had also been previously charged with murder. And of course, Gary Carr himself had been previously charged with aggravated kidnapping and sexual assault. Yeah. And, you know, he, he gets out of jail for that and immediately does this to the Murray O'Hare family. It's wild. I mean, it's, it's like a super team of criminals, like yeah. to pull to pull this off. That super have, villains, yeah, yeah sure. super villains, yeah, for sure. On September 26th, the group moved out of the Warren Inn and into a La Quinta Inn. They would later explain that they did this because they knew that they were about to kill the family, and at the La Quinta Inn, they had doors on the bottom floor where you could back a van right up to them to where you can move the bodies from the hotel room into oh. the van without people being able to see you. And this was the reason why they moved locations. 
Three days later, John Garth retrieved the gold and delivered it to Waters, who then drove up to Austin and put the gold in the storage locker. He then drove back to San Antonio. While he was gone, Danny Fry and Gary Carr bound the family's wrists and ankles. Madeline apparently tried to protest, but the kidnappers told them that they were going to leave the family tied up at the hotel to give them time to get away with the gold. So, right, like the the entire situation had revolved around the kidnappers getting this gold. The family yeah. believed once they get this gold, they're going to let us go. Once the gold was handed over to them, Waters took off to go partially cash out some of the gold as well as put it in that storage locker. And by the time he came back, everybody was prepared for the murders that were about to ensue. So they thought they were going to be okay up until this point. Yes. In fact, Madeline and Robin were scared and worried about what was going on because it felt weird. Like they were being separated and being put into uh, bindings, you know. Like prepared for something. Yes. And so they were really nervous and scared, but John calmed them down and told them that everything would be okay soon. So this sort of settled everybody down and the kidnappers tied the women to their beds and then they took John to the second bedroom. When Waters returned from the trip to Austin after he had dropped off the gold in the storage locker, the murders began. They targeted John first eager to get rid of the person who could put up the biggest fight. They jumped him and began smashing his head into a night table several times while he desperately tried to fight them off. This was most likely the cause of the skull fractures that we saw in the skull when when the bodies were recovered. Okay, from hitting the nightstand over and over. Yes. They then held him down and suffocated him. John's head was bleeding from the multiple bashes against the nightstand, and so they put the plastic bag around it to catch the blood so they wouldn't leave evidence behind. So it wasn't a suffocation thing. It was it was a collection of blood issue for well, the bag. it's okay. kind of not sure. Again, Dr. Glassman couldn't find specific evidence to, to show how John Garth died. There was obviously all of the blunt force trauma around his head. But it could have been suffocation, it could have been blunt force trauma and the resulting blood loss from those injuries. It could have been any of those things. There was a lot going on with his death. Yeah, exactly. The men then went into the bedroom where Madeline and Robin were tied up. Waters said that Fry helped him strangle Madeline, while Gary Carr strangled Robin. After the family was dead, they wrapped the bodies with sheets from the hotel and loaded them into the van. They drove to the storage unit that they had lined with plastic sheeting. Neither Waters nor Fry could bring themselves to dismember the bodies, so Gary Carr offered to do the job for $25,000 per person, to which they agreed. So he's giving wow. he's getting a $75,000 boost for being the one to yeah. dismember the bodies. Jeez, they're just negotiating about this like on the fly? Pretty much. Yeah, because apparently, I mean, according to what what Waters was kind of saying, like Carr was kind of laughing at them, like, oh, yeah, you guys can't even deal with cutting up the bodies. I'll do it fine for 25000 each. And they were honestly like, okay. Like, they weren't even worried about it because they so much didn't want to be the ones cutting up the bodies. I mean, I, nobody does, really. No, I mean, uh, but it's so weird how brazen he is of offering to do it. 
Oh, Gary a, Carr, yeah. Yeah, for a set number of value for, you know, $25,000 a person. And then they all just went, yeah. Yeah. Well, Gary Carr honestly seemed like a real monster. They, I mean, they honestly, all do. M- perhaps even more than David Waters. Almost like David Waters was like the idea guy, but then Gary Carr is like the muscle or the the actuator, like the person who's getting it done. Yeah, kind of. I, I think that would be an okay assessment. But Gary Carr was also the one who was, I think, a little bit more vicious. You know, we all, he obviously has the the sexual assaults, yeah. the sexual nature of the crimes. The real violent crimes on his record. Exactly, yeah. yes. So Gary Carr cut the legs off of each body, and they were stuffed into 50-gallon steel drums. The next day, Waters and Carr told Danny Fry that they needed to scout areas to dump the bodies, and they drove him to the riverfront area in Siegelville. While Fry's back was turned, someone shot him in the head at point-blank range. Waters initially said that Carr killed Fry, but eventually he did admit to the murder himself. Okay, hold on. So David Waters shot Fry? Yes. And then what happened? And then Gary Carr was the one to remove his head and hands. Just like he had removed, dismembered the bodies of the family. Yeah. Yeah. But but is there any extra information like why they cut him out at this point, at this juncture? And then, well, not to, no pun intended, but then like cut him out. <laughs> well, it seems like, first of all, it was, they, they hired him on because they knew that he was like a nice, friendly guy. He was, he would make the family more at ease. Sure. And he would serve his purpose. But they also knew that they could kill him right away when everything was done. From what they said in their statements, because Danny Fry had a tendency to be a kind of a big drinker and he was also a big talker, part of the, their worry was that he was going to then turn around, you spill know, the have beans. a exactly. He was yeah. going to spill the brings, beans. He was going to tell somebody, and then everything was lost to them. And that's why they decided to kill him. Yeah, it was a loose end. Yeah. Okay. Of course, they not only cut off his head and hands, but they were also removed all of his clothes and anything else that could have identified him. They hoped incorrectly that this would prevent the body from being identified. Now, it should be noted there are a couple inconsistencies in Waters' story when it came to the murder of Danny Fry. First, there was so little blood at the scene where the body was found that investigators had thought that the body had been killed and dismembered elsewhere. But Waters said no, the body was both shot and dismembered at the location he was found. There's no evidence of this, Hmm. other than what David Waters said. Okay. Second, the medical examiner concluded that Danny Fry had been dead only about 12 hours when he was found on October 2nd. But Waters was insistent that he was killed on the 30th, two days before the body was found. And they really tried to hammer... Uh, David Waters on both of these points when uh, Danny Fry was murdered and where he was murdered. But Waters really stuck to his story, even Hmm. though it didn't fit with the evidence. So these are two points where we kind of question exactly what we were told by David Waters. Yeah, but we don't we don't think it it really transpired any. Di- I mean, ultimately they killed him and they dismembered him. Yes, exactly. But it does seem like there's something that they're covering for about yeah, this weird. this murder with Danny Fry 
that was never really fully explained. And it's mm-hmm. just a very strange point. We don't know what this, the truth is, really. We wow. just know what the scientific evidence proves and then what David Waters says. I wonder what actually really transpired. Yeah, I don't know. Well, after killing Danny Fry, Carr and Waters drove back to Austin, loaded up the drums with the family's bodies, and headed down to Cooksey Ranch. They dug a shallow grave and dumped out the contents of the drums into the hole, along with Fry's head and hands. They poured gasoline on the grave and let everything burn for a while before covering the bodies back up with dirt and returning to Austin. That's why there was burn evidence on the bodies. Okay, That's right. Just like a little bit of a char, not enough to do much of any damage as far as destroying evidence. From what Waters and Carr said later, the whole thing from getting the gold to burying the bodies took three days and they were on a solid meth bender the whole time where they just like weren't sleeping. They were just doing meth and <sighs> killing Jeez. all these people and doing all these things. And I just want to bring this up because I think this is just a fascinating aspect of this case. Naturally, David Waters had a lot to say about his ex-girlfriend, Patty Jo Steffens. Okay. The ex that spilled the beans? Oh, yes. She spilled the beans and she absolutely brought this case home. Like the only reason why this case was prosecuted was because of Patty Joe. Yeah, I'm sure he has all kinds of negative things to say about oh, her. Oh, he does it. All. He does certainly. He said that she wasn't just a person on the periphery, but that she was a willing accomplice who was well aware of the entire scheme, the kidnapping and the murders. Oh, wow. He said that not only did she help him rent the storage locker, that she received money and a new truck in the scam, and that she had been the one to locate and get access to the burial location at Cooksey Ranch through a customer at her work. Those were all true. That is exactly what happened. (laughs) David said she even came up with an idea to call and page him all the time while the kidnapping was going on in San Antonio in order to pose as fake additional accomplices to scare the family into believing their kidnapping was part of a larger operation. That part we don't know if is true. That's what David Waters is saying. Yeah. But did did any of this result in charges against her? No, absolutely not. Remember, she had that immunity agreement drawn up before she even started talking. And Agent Cowling, amongst others, have said that they believed her version of the story where she was doing these things, but she didn't know it was involved with a kidnapping and murder and all of these other things. She was just helping out her boyfriend and her, and for whatever he was doing, you know. She wasn't actually intricately involved and knew what was going on. But, you know, there's so... And, you know, I don't know. It sounds like she, you would know. <laughs> like, all this stuff that's going on, it, sound, it well, sounds like you would be more intrinsically connected with the details of what's going on than you're letting on. Well, I mean, it's just an interesting part of the story. I don't know that for sure. I don't want to say for sure. sure that she was a bad part of this group because she did end up helping so much. And I I do think she was an abused woman in a yeah. abusive relationship with David Waters. So there's, you know, again, a very, very nuanced mm-hmm. understanding of what was going on. I just wanted to bring that out because I thought it was really interesting. No, it is. And we hear this a lot from people who end up getting deals where they get immunity. And then it's like, oh, 
but were they actually involved directly in yeah. in the crime? Yeah. So it, who knows? It's but, a weird. It's a weird like chasing the tail of the jaguar you're hunting, right? Like yeah. you're you're trying to get to this ultimate conclusion where you find the murderer and you find everyone who's involved, but you might be making plea bargains and agreements early on with other people who might be more involved than you think they are. Yeah, exactly. And I will say that Patty Joe ended up going into witness protection. She changed her name, moved out of the state, and I don't know, just went on and, and lived her life. And hopefully she's doing okay. And hopefully she also didn't actually have anything yeah. to do with these murders. Oh, let's hope. Yeah. Well, one of the other biggest mysteries of this case is what happened to the family's dogs. So oh, you remember. Please, please. Oh, is it good? Well, it's nothing bad. Oh. But remember that the, the family's dogs went missing and the family's dogs had been left behind at the house. Yeah. There was all of these situations where they're trying to take care of the dogs. And then suddenly, months later, the f- dogs went missing. And a lot of people believed that this was an indication that the family was alive. Yeah, where are those dogs at? Well, now that we know that the family had been, in fact, murdered before the dogs ever disappeared, we don't know. No one knows who took the dogs and they were never seen or heard from again. What? Yeah. So the dogs were just a weird part of the story. Nobody knows what happened to them. Someone just came and took them? Yeah, I I mean, I guess. But none of the people involved no, have any it, no. idea about where the dogs went. No, there was absolutely no no evidence to suggest that any, like, waters or car or fry or anybody had anything to do with these dogs. Where'd those dogs go? We don't know. Isn't that so weird? I mean, I thought the dog disappearance was weird yeah. to begin <laughs> with, you know? Like, that was such a weird thing. And it kind of, yeah. like, played into the whole family's disappearance and maybe trying to skip town and all that kind of stuff. But... but yeah, I know. And that's what's so ironic about it is... That was such a clue to people. Oh, well, they're certainly still alive. But no, in fact, we have no idea what happened with those dogs. So strange. I don't know. I'm I'm so hurt that we don't have <laughs> oh, resolution on the they, dogs. I'm sure they were sweet little babies. Well, there is a tiny little bit of an update on Gary Carr's sentencing that I think it's important for us to mention. Sure. Recently, federal law changed and life sentences are no longer considered constitutional for the two charges that Gary Carr was convicted for. So he was able to appeal his sentencing. In 2021, just last year, Carr was resentenced to 50 years in prison, with the 21 years he's already served counting towards that sentence. Now, he's in his 70s currently, so even with this change or reduction in sentencing, he will still spend the rest of his natural life in prison. Good. Yeah. And finally, John McCormick. Let's do a little update on him. He is still writing for the San Antonio Express News. And we talked about how John McCormick's work factored into the resolution of this case. But we also have to give credit to investigator Tim Young, IRS agent Ed Martin, and FBI agent Donna Cowling, because they had such incredible diligence in solving this case when other people did not want to and did not care. Yeah. But no, you're right. Ultimately, it came down to a small group of people that really gave everything they had for this case to come to a resolution. 
Everybody else didn't seem to care. The Austin PD wasn't going to investigate it. They weren't going to find a resolution to this case. Yeah, that's true. And we, of course, need to give credit to the other reporters who tracked down leads as well. Because there were multiple people involved in this. It's just not the people you would have thought. Not the Austin (laughs) Police Department who had, like, this was their case. They completely bungled (laughs) everything. Yeah. And finally, if you were concerned about John McCormick and Tim Young's relationship after their disagreement that kind of split them apart and they went their separate ways, never fear. The two have spoken about each other a lot, and they give each other heaps of praise. It's very clear that they only have the utmost respect for each other, and they both believe that they did a great thing in working on this case and resolving it. Good. Well, I'm glad they resolved everything and and they're on good terms with each other. That's great. And, you know, we talked about super villains in this case with the bad guys. They really seemed like an evil pact of villains. And then there were all the the good forces that were that were really working on this case when nobody else wanted to. And it was really like the Avengers, you know, at one point with a super team. And I mean, this case had everything from gold coins, jewels, uh, high money thefts, embezzlement, uh, possibly fleeing the country. I mean, what did this case not have? And there was even, you know, excavation of human remains in this case. Yeah, the excavation and recovery of the bodies, I thought, was a really interesting part of this case. You and I have archaeological background, and I have actually done excavation of human remains, but only in an archaeological context. So I'd be really interested to see some of these distinctions between a excavation and recovery based on forensic material versus how we do it in the archaeological world. I thought that was just sort of an interesting point. And I would like to learn even more about this case as far as Dr. Glassman and his work goes. Yeah. Maybe one day uh, we'll get to do some of those kind of things and expand our our excavation repertoire from archaeologist to forensic scientist. Well, very good. I'm sure, listeners, you can tell why this turned into a two-parter. I don't think you originally planned for it to be one, but there was just so much material that we had to go through, and it was all really fascinating and and important to understanding the truth of this case, and, and as much as we can tell really happened. Yeah. And yeah, it was a long story, so much to get through. Hopefully here from here on out, we're going to be maybe decreasing the amount of research and pressure that we be, that <laughs> we do for each episode. That way we're able to actually put them out, you know, a little bit more on schedule. Yeah, I'm the, sure you all would, would appreciate that. Yeah, the big episodes, they are big for a reason. They take a lot of time and effort behind the scenes. And then even when you're recording them, I mean, this original recording started at over a couple of hours and now we've cut it down. I think it was like three hours. It was like three hours originally. <laughs> so we've we've cut this one together. Well, I've got a hankering for some good news. I was just about to ask. When, you know, we've talked about a lot of uh, endangered species on this show. But you I have? have. Yeah. From sea turtles to to oh. different animals that are that are rare in Texas that okay. are still being found. And we're going to talk about some some flora in the good news. Oh, excellent. So, so that'll be up right after this. Okay, Aaron, give me your general thoughts on trees. Like them. Yeah, who doesn't? I guess if you're running into one at high speed, they're not very friendly. But, you know, otherwise, they're great. They make the earth a nice place to live. They clean the air. 
They're good for the environment. Well, we all like trees. But did you know that there has been a recent groundbreaking discovery when it comes to a particular tree that scientists thought had gone extinct? Well, right here in Texas, this discovery has been made. Oh. Yes, in our own Big Bend National Park, a particular oak tree thought to have been lost to us long ago has been located and identified. Therefore, it is no longer extinct. So according to southernliving.com and KSAT News, which are the sources for this good news, a team who represents a coalition of more than 10 different scientific institutes found a lone Quarkus tardifolia. Quarkus? Quarkus. Okay. Or Quirkus? I don't know. It sounds like a Star Trek Deep Space Nine character. I immediately <laughs> thought of Quark from, <laughs> from uh, DS9. Yeah, it's his cousin. Quarkus tardifolia. Tardifolia. <laughs> Uh, well, this particular tree uh, was found and located la- uh, back uh, late May of this year. Now, unfortunately, the tree is in quote-unquote poor condition. Its trunk was scarred by evidence of recent fire damage. There's been a lot of wildfires in Big Bend. And it looks like some of those fires reached this really rare tree. And it also showed signs of severe fungal infection, which is not good for this particular species. And because of that, scientists deemed it an immediate need for conservation. Quarkus tardifolia was first described way back in the 1930s. In fact, the last living specimen of this tree was believed to have died in 2011. It is also considered one of, if not the rarest oak trees in the world. I don't know, I've seen pictures of it. It doesn't, it's not like it's pink or anything or, you know, there's anything striking about it. It just kind of looks like an oak tree, but it is the rarest in the world. How does an oak tree become extinct? I mean, how does that even... I guess they... uh, Just like anything else, I guess. (laughs) Well, uh, I think there's several threats that um, attack certain species of trees and also global warming, erosion, different micro environments and eco regions in our state are changing and shifting. Like, we just had a dust bowl in human memory. That's where a huge region of Texas turned into a giant ashtray, basically. Mm -hmm. That can affect several species of plants and animals. So they just found this one tree? Just one tree. There's no more in Big Bend that they know of. They don't know that yet. So there's there's kind of some, some more information about that. Now, the head of the Rare Plant and Conservation Department of San Antonio's Botanical Garden... Michael Eason told KSAT News, quote, It is not every day that one finds a presumed extinct species. We've been given a second chance to conserve this species, this plant. It is an opportunity we will not waste. So what they're currently doing in kind of conjunction with working with the National Park Service is to reduce the immediate wildfire threat to the tree and possible other trees in that area. So they're doing wildfire prevention. And conservationists are also planning a return trip to search for acorns in an attempt to propagate this rare tree. Oh, that's what I was going to ask next. Is it still producing like nuts or whatever? Well, and there might be other of these oak trees out there in that region that obviously Big Bend is a very tough terrain to get through. Uh, A lot of times you have to go into certain areas via horseback and like ATVs and stuff like that. So the search continues for other Quarkus tardifolia and (laughs) ones that are bearing ripe acorns that they can propagate. But Wesley Knapp, the chief botanist of NatureServe, who also participated in this expedition, said in a statement to KSAT News, Quote, in many ways, this tree is an ancient relic. 
Due to the changing climate, the world is completely different now than when it evolved. It is incumbent upon us to learn from it, protect it while we still can, in order to inform future conservation efforts. They also added in this article uh, that across the planet, oak trees, specifically oak trees, serve as a massive ecological anchor that clean air, filter water, sequester carbon dioxide, support countless fungi and insects as well as birds and mammals. And when one of this species is lost, it only puts more stress and danger on other species that are in the region and in yeah, the area. Absolutely. Everything is in a relationship with each other mm-hmm. in nature. So, yeah, that kind of stuff is important. So do, you, do they have any estimation on how old this tree is? This tree looks like it could be over 100 years old. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And that would make sense with, you know, it was first noted in the record in the 1930s, uh, this type of tree. But uh, the last one that they saw that was dead was in 2011. So it's a pretty sizable tree, but they're hoping uh, there are other ones like it in the area that they can save. They're also looking at doing things with um, where you you cut a, a piece of the tree off and you graft it to other trees to propagate the tree that way in hopes that they mm-hmm. might bear acorns at some point. So then you can start growing whole new trees. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And it will also go into the, the if they do find these acorns, they're going to go into the, the world seed bank to oh, maintain cool. all of the world's uh, flora species. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. That's an excellent bit of news. I mean, usually these days when it comes to nature, You're hearing all sorts of really bad news. So that's a nice little special bit of information about nature. Yeah, and you've kind of become uh, the plant lady at the new house. You have all I your have new so plants. I have so many plants. Yeah. I should, I should uh, grow a corcus. <laughs> well, you got to get your hands on one. They're really rare. <laughs> Apparently, got to go down a big bend. <laughs> go get me a corcus. I think that's where we're going to end. Going to go get me a corcus. <laughs> All right, folks, this is the after show where we thank our patrons. First up, let's remind you of our social media places where we can be found. We can be found on Twitter at ACNC Podcast and on Instagram at All Crime No Cattle. And you can join our Facebook group at ACNC Posse Discussion Group. Yeah, we also have a website uh, that has links to where you can pick up merch from us. And if you want to support the show in another way, you can always go to our Patreon site. It's patreon.com slash cattle. We have four different tiers on there. You can listen to episodes without ads. You can get a bunch of extra bonus episodes on there that you can listen to. And uh, yeah, we also have abilities to get t- stickers, buttons, all kinds of fun stuff and shout outs. And of course... Those shout-outs every episode have to go out to our Texas Rangers, our highest tier. They are the producers, our special producers, to each episode of the show. We love them. We adore them. They are the magic that makes the machine work. So thank you so much to all of our Texas Rangers, which include, and are limited to, Amanda Mattaford, Angel Moody, Don Maloney, Gail Parker, Jamie Gray, Jennifer Magnolia, Jessica Layfield, Leah Darty. Lisa Layton, Mickey Sweet, and Sarah Nicholson. Thank you guys so much. You're awesome. Big high five from from across the podcast. Boom. Awesome. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And we will be back as soon as possible with another episode. Yeah, we've got uh, more Patreon-only stuff coming, more regular episode stuff coming. And uh, we'll be hard at work, as per usual. And we hope you guys have a good rest of your month. Stay cool. 
Don't get caught in any wildfires. Those are all over the state right now. Keep an eye out for those extinct trees. <laughs> yeah, watch out for Quarkus. And we'll see you next time. Thank you all. And always remember, the crime is bigger in Texas, y'all. Adios. Goodbye. Goodbye.